Hello, and welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm Kathy Foley-Meyer, your host, and I'm really happy today to be here with photographer Peter Mertz, who is also a PAC Prison Arts Collective board member. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Yeah. So Peter has done a lot of photography as part of the Arts and Corrections program. He's also published books. He has a forthcoming book, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I wanted to ask you, what what got you interested in photography? Well, it all started, I'd say, in the upstairs bathroom of my family home. In this case, it was over the bathtub where my dad had set up an enlarger for a small dark room. So he taught me the fundamentals when I was in high school. But then I was just a snap shooter for a decade or so. And what got me seriously interested in photography actually was in the late 70s, I got a job with a nonprofit organization called Bread and Roses up here in Marin County, uh, Northern California. Bread and Roses takes free, live, high-quality entertainment into institutional settings where people are, are locked away and not able to get out to see live entertainment. And also people who are otherwise indisposed to hearing uh, live music, such as daycare, Alzheimer's daycare programs, children's hospitals, convalescent hospitals, jails, and prisons. Right. So uh, I was attending some, some of these concerts with these uh, volunteer musicians uh, performing for these uh, locked away audiences and noticed the, the remarkable interchanges that was happening between the performer and the audience, the the generous uh, performers and the appreciative audience. And I said to myself, observing one of these shows one day, somebody should photograph this. And that was what got me to purchase a used camera and start photographing bread and roses performances in institutions. So that was really the start. Was your dad a professional photographer as well, or was it more of a hobby for him? He was a hobbyist, yeah, but just involved enough yeah, I, I know what you mean about seeing the interaction between an audience member and an artist, um, you know, in an intimate setting. It can be incredibly, incredibly powerful. So when did you start photographing inside carceral institutions? So when I was working for Bread and Roses, uh, they actually produced a few concerts in some Northern California prisons. And I photographed a few of those at San Quentin. The most recent one I recall is uh, Michael Franti uh, did a concert there. And actually, when I was there photographing this concert on the yard in San Quentin prison, uh, the man who was then running the art program at San Quentin approached me and and asked if I'd be willing to come and and photograph his art program. And, And that was the beginning of my involvement with Arts and Corrections. So you were photographing art classes, basically? Right. So at San Quentin at the time, they were running uh, visual art classes, including painting, printmaking. They were doing drama classes. Marin Shakespeare Company is running classes there. They have a robust music program. So I was able to document all of these. And, and, and later, actually, San Quentin got some movement classes, dance classes as well. So I, at Steve's request, went in and started photographing these these classes he was running. Yeah, there was an image on your site that really struck me. It was of a woman, she's dancing, she's kind of midair. I think she's doing what's called a grand jeté, where she's just kind of in flight. 
Can you talk a bit about that photograph? Because it's kind of an amazing photograph because when you look at it, it looks like kind of like any other dance photograph. But if you look closely, you realize that there's a like a drink dispensing machine kind of in the background. Yeah, this was at Central California Women's Facility. And the most remarkable thing about that day that I recall is that it was the day, so the class had been going on for quite some weeks. It was over halfway done. In fact, they were working up towards their end of class performance at the end of the 10-week class. And the instructor had brought in on this class uh, dance skirts, which she had never brought in before. You know, the women wear really uh, sort of non-gendered clothing uh, most of the right. time sweatpants and sweatshirts and uh, their regular gear issued by the institutions is not at all feminine. So when the women saw the dance skirts, they were just over the moon. And, and the instructor had hesitated to bring them in because she didn't know how the participants would relate to them. Right. But the women just loved the skirts. There were long skirts and short ones and tutus, just a whole variety of different sizes. So uh, they spent a bit of time in the beginning of this particular class trying on uh, the dance skirts, and everyone found one that they liked. And then they just had their class. And fortunately, at the end of the class, the, the instructor suggested that we do some portraits, individual portraits of dancers. And that's so we had each dancer come in front of me and, and do whatever move she wanted to. So fortunately, I was ready for this woman when she left. I think she must have had dance experience before this class because she's high and, and looks great. Yeah, and you can tell just the expression on her face and the energy that comes from the photograph. It's like literally the definition of joy. You know, you, just, you were just there for that moment. Yes. And uh, yeah, and I can tell it's, you know, she's wearing this beautiful kind of tall skirt that's, that's sort of semi-long and it's an incredible shot. Yeah, you mentioned the word joy and the other word that comes to mind when I look at that photo is freedom. Yes. Yeah, which makes the setting that she's in, you know, the sort of contrast all the more striking. Yes. And that uh, image was made in a, a visiting room, which a lot of the classes have. So you see the vending machines in the back. There's so much going on, so many layers to that photograph. And I wanted to ask you as well, because I was really intrigued by the Hamlet on Alcatraz photographic series. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So this was, oh, oh, uh, this was some years ago. And I connected with a theater group here in the San Francisco area called We Players, W-E Players. And We Players had an artist residency on Alcatraz Island for one summer and fall. And I was invited to document the production of Hamlet on Alcatraz. And the way the play was staged was that each scene took place in a different part of the island. So the theater moved for each scene around the island, and the audience members uh, moved as well with, with the theater. So each scene was in a different historic, you know, interesting part of the island. And that was such a fun class to uh, photograph. We had the opportunity on Halloween night to spend the night in a cell on Alcatraz, and we did that, and that was pretty interesting. And how was that? We each found a cell with a bunk in it and stretched out. I don't think any of us slept very much. Well, Alcatraz is supposed to be haunted. I didn't see any ghosts, but it was uh, definitely a spooky place. 
Now, it was really nice to be there for sunrise. I, I was out on a high part of the island during sunrise and watched the sun r- rise over Oakland and the bay and the Bay Bridge. So it was really beautiful. But it was a, yeah, it was a strange night. I've been there. I was there, oh, had to be 10 or 15 years ago. But I definitely, it has this very strange energy about it. So I definitely think I I could last all night there. So many layers of history. Yeah. Federal prison at one point, it was occupied by the Native Americans for some Mm -hmm. time. A really storied incident. There were plans to turn it into a casino, which fortunately failed and became a national monument instead. Um, So yeah, it's it's a fascinating place. So I wanted to know, how has taking photographs of people making art inside prison changed you or your art practice? Because in many cases, you're witnessing people beginning to experience their humanity in a different way through art. Do you feel like that has had an impact on your practice at all? Yeah, I I do. (laughs) It's been such a powerful project for me. I I, I tend to do long-term projects, and this one has been going for about 15 years now. It was stopped by COVID, of course, uh, when all programming stopped in the prisons. Programming is beginning to resume in programs somewhat fitfully, but people are in the classes are wearing masks now, so it uh, makes photography a little bit challenging. Right. When I first started doing these photographs of prison art classes, I imagined doing documentary photography. You know, in the classic form, documentary photography is quite objective where the photographer is removed from, not engaged with, but but removed from, and just witnessing and documenting uh, what's going on in the class. So that's how I first started shooting. But the energy in the classes, I've visited about almost 250 classes now uh, and, mm-hmm. and photographed them. And with great consistency, the classes have a, a terrific energy about them, where the men or women who come into the class set aside the rules of the yard, which doesn't allow them to talk to certain other groups or races. or, right. or There are all sorts of unwritten rules about the yard. But when they come into the art class, the artists really set that aside and uh, they collaborate, they mentor each other, you know, they support each other through challenges. So that, when I started feeling that energy, and then the, the relationship between the artists and the instructor, the instructor becomes a sort of a mentor uh, to them in many ways. So the energy was really positive inside these. I began to feel frustrated shooting in an objective way. I felt compelled to, be, to get closer, to move in closer. I wanted to be a part of the energy instead of separate from it. I also wanted my the viewers of my photographs to feel the energy. And when I that are removed, a fly on the wall, it wasn't coming through so much. So I started moving really into the middle of things. Dance classes and theater classes in particular, I just get right in the middle of the action and just have to be really alert not to get run over uh, by someone. So then my work became much more intimate and much more engaged with the artists. And that became much more satisfying to me. And to your point, I began to realize that perhaps the greatest objective for this project would not be to document arts and corrections programs, but rather to illuminate the humanity of the artists. 
themselves. You talk about humanities, and I also call it authenticity. The city of these artists for their art is uh, really profound. And yeah, it very much impacted the way that I've been shooting this program. So my, my work has become much more intimate and much more engaged. Yeah, you, you can actually see that progression on your site, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. You know, I started out looking at your landscapes, and then I moved. Well, I actually jumped into the corrections pictures first, and then I went back out and went back in again. And yeah, you can see the point at which you kind of shifted positions almost Mm. and became in the middle of the action. Mm -hmm. So an interesting point is that if if you look at the projects on my website, the project that I did most immediately prior to Arts and Corrections uh, was Mm -hmm. a project called Solitude. It was a shot on film, medium format film. It was in the landscape with no people difference between that project and arts and corrections is like night and day. And part of that was designed because when I end a long-term project, whether it be five or 10 years and, and want to start a new project, I often find that to have a project that's very different from my prior project really helps to separate. And um, after solitude, I was looking for a project that would involve working with people again Yeah. What's interesting about the Solitude series, though, is when I was looking at them, I kept thinking about 1960s and 70s land art. Even though you were just capturing nature, you know, in and of itself, it also reminded me a little bit of some of those artists who dug into the land to actually make art. And, you know, and I had to double check to see, oh, is this a land art piece or is he just taking photographs of nature? I love land art. Goldsworthy, Andy Goldsworthy is one of my favorite works in nature. Um, And I do love that work. Yeah, me too. So I wanted to ask you about one more of your projects, the Liberty at Large documentary series. What made you start that? Okay, so yeah, that's sort of an outlier project. Let me just explain to our audience. Peter has captured, I did not realize that these things actually existed, but the Statue of Liberty in a variety of contexts. Uh, evidently, this is a statue that actually pops up in a lot of places that I didn't really know about all over the world. Yes. Yeah, I was surprised by that too. So I think the main projects that I've done in photography have vacillated between very introspective fine artwork, such as Solitude. I did a project on masculinity. I did a project on children's hideouts and forts. These are all very personal. On the other end of the spectrum is what I call advocacy photography, which is what I'm doing for Arts and Corrections and for Bread and Roses, which is shooting to advocate and and publicize something. But in between those, there are occasional projects that I've done mostly due to opportunity. So I guess I'm an opportunistic photographer. So what happened was, at the time, I had a job that was traveling me all over the world. I was traveling a lot in Europe and Asia. And of course, I always had a camera. This was after I'd started doing photography. So I always had a camera with me. And I just started seeing different replicas of the Statue of Liberty, 3D replicas in these most unlikely places. And so I started to sort of look out for them after I'd encountered the first few And they just kept coming and coming and coming. And so it became this whole project. And then my colleagues who were also traveling around the world would inform me of of one that they found in Singapore, for example, in the sculpture garden in Singapore. So the next time I went through Singapore, I, I made a point to go to that sculpture garden and photograph 
the Statue of Liberty, it was the only Western statue in the whole Statue Park. All the rest were really? Chinese and uh, different Asian cultures, but there was only one Western. It was the Statue of Liberty. That's interesting. And I wonder what it represents you know, in these other places, is it some kind of American value, you know, stated value of like freedom and acceptance, yearning to be free? Or what do you think the attraction is in a place like that? You know, that's, that's a very good question. Um, and I, I did sometimes, I was sometimes able to talk to people who had created the Statue of Liberty or who lived near it that I was photographing, John. Um, but I don't know that I'm qualified to make a a clear assessment of of why there are so many of them. I will say it seems to me that it's one of the most recognized secular symbols in the world. Uh, you know, if you take out religious symbols such as crosses and crucifixes, right. Virgin Marys and and Buddhas and things like that, if you think just about secular imagery, there's the Eiffel Tower, you know, Golden Gate Bridge, Statue of Liberty. There's a few like that. Um, right. of Liberty is just so, her profile is so recognizable. I think it has something to do with the values stated. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is the Statue of Liberty, so. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's about liberty. Yeah. it's What's funny is it appears on so many bars and restaurants. Yes. <laughs> you are at liberty to eat and drink. So I wanted to ask you, are there artists that inspire you, other visual artists or any other kind of artist in your work? Oh, gosh, I'm sure there are. Um, and I'm just sort of drawing a blank at the moment. So let me circle back to that. Of course, of course. So let me ask you this. Is you have a book coming out in, is it May, June? In June of uh, June? 2022. Yeah, just a few months. And you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The book will be called Ex Crucible. The Passion of Incarcerated Artists. So the title, Ex Crucible, from the Crucible. The Crucible, of course, is a prison, and the intensity uh, that prison is, and, and, and also the lives of the men and women that led them to prison. So that there's that whole intensity. And of course, out of this intensity comes, this crucible comes the passion of incarcerated artists. So it, it'll be published by Daylight Books. I will be doing a crowdfunding fundraising campaign uh, in the next few months because these books are expensive to produce. Yeah. It's got 86 photographs, I think, uh, color photographs. I consider it a companion volume to Paths of Discovery, uh, Art Practice and Its Impact in California Prisons. This was a book, uh, we published the second edition in 2015. It was, I published it with my dear friend, uh, Dr. Larry Brewster, who's the first researcher on the efficacy of prison art programming. So that book is a lot of text as well as photographs. And the text includes interviews with incarcerated artists, writings from them, letters, uh, their artwork, a history of arts and corrections in California, a summary of the research done by D Dr. Brewster and others. So the new book, being pretty much photos only, is a visual companion to Paths of Discovery, which has a lot more text and information and detail. Got it. So for the average person who may not know the full extent of arts and corrections, what would you hope that they would take away from both of these books, as well as the work that you do? I think if you spend time looking at either or both of the books that I'm doing or, or my photographs, I hope that the images begin to disrupt the perception that many in the general public have about 
who exactly is incarcerated. I think many people believe that incarcerated men and women are irredeemable or uh, don't deserve programming such as arch programming. But I think if you look at the photos and see the humanity, the authenticity of these men and women, it might change your mind about who is incarcerated and what they need and what they deserve. Okay, that's good. So I'm going to circle around back to artists that inspire you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... Or maybe there's a photographer's work that, you know, you saw when you were in your formative years and you thought, yeah, I I can do that. I can talk about photographers who've inspired me. That's a little bit closer to home. And I will say that looking at other photographers' work, I tend to find more inspiration than aspiration. Right. So that's just my process. One of the first photographers that really rang my bell was Henri Cartier-Bresson, amazing French photographer who... Yeah. Coined the term, the decisive moment. Other photographers I've enjoyed uh, over the years, Elliot Erwitt uh, has a wonderful humor in his photography. Uh, Sally Mann did a beautiful work oh, yeah. with her family, with her children when they were young. I remember she published a thing in the New York Times magazine. This had to be many, many, many years ago. And I just could not stop looking at her photographs of her children, yeah. who are you know now fully adults and like yeah. middle-aged, but... At the yeah. time, they were very small. It's powerful work. And and Sally is very eloquent, so she speaks very well and, and writes well about her work as well. She does. Yeah. What about photographers of, of landscapes? Yeah, I have a couple of landscape-based projects. Uh, one is the study I did of Little Cumberland Island, which is mm-hmm. a, a small island off the wild island off the east coast of Georgia. And, oh gosh... And the other landscape-based project is solitude, of course. Right. Um, yeah. I was just curious if you ever had looked at Edward Weston, or he always sort of pops in because his work is sort of kind of part of the vernacular of landscape photography. I respect and admire Ansel Adams. Actually, I think that's who I was thinking of when right. I said right. Yeah. That type of photography, that large format, sort of grand scale photography, I don't think anybody will ever do better than Ansel did. So I was able to avoid the trap of trying to follow him. But there are others who have done landscape photography that I really love. Pinti Samalati is uh, one Mm -hmm. Finnish photographer uh, who does wonderful work in the landscape. Kudelka does uh, some work in in the landscape. Cortez is a a classic Mm -hmm. that uses the environment a lot in in his work. So, yeah, I I have a collection of photo books which keeps growing, and uh, those are some of the photographers that are in it, yeah. And finally, I'm going to ask ask about your study of masculinity. How old is that? That was one of my earliest projects. It was about the same time I was doing the Bread and Roses portfolio. The masculinity project, that was the first personal serious photography project that I had done. And, you know, I was a young man uh, in my 20s, late 20s, or I guess this was probably early 30s by now. Me thinking about gender roles. I had a, a very strong mother, passive father, uh, gay and just with all everything about gender up in our culture and things, I just wanted to explore the idea of masculinity. So it was a real journey. It was a 10-year project. And I just started shooting what I thought might be 
my archetypes of masculinity that I had adopted through from my family and from my culture. But then it got from starting with the archetypes, I then started looking at shadows of the archetypes. So we've got an archetype might be a cowboy, Western individualism, rugged individualism, all this, but there's a shadow side, a dark side to that too, when it becomes too extreme. So I, I began to try to photograph the shadows of the archetypes. And then I, uh, so the project sort of goes back and forth between shadow and light as I explored the topic of masculinity. Yeah. I didn't exactly figure out what it was, but I ended up, uh, the end of the project is intimate portraits of men that I knew at the time. I was in a men's group for seven years when I was doing this mm -hmm. project. Um, so as part of my learning for the project. Um, and I would address uh, the other men in the men's group. Uh, that was how the project wrapped up, was with those portraits. That makes sense because it gets steadily more intimate. And I thought it would be interesting to sort of have that series come out again now when we're going through a period where we're struggling over the meaning of gender and gender roles. And that's what drew me to look at at that series on your site. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I haven't thought about that project in a while yet. That is my job. <laughs> to bring those things up that you haven't thought about. So, well, Peter, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. If um, Do you have any advice for people who are starting to experience their creativity, but they haven't maybe found the exact route to make it come out, you know, as an, as an artist, what would your advice to somebody like that be? Well, Kathy, thank you for the interview. You have really interesting questions and you're easy to talk to. So I appreciate that making it as easy as possible for me. For me, in my journey with photography, with art, it was really about finding that still quiet voice within myself, which let me know that I was on a path that was either working for me or not working for me. So more important than finding out what your audience works uh, wants is finding out what really worked for you, the artist. So I recommend people just try different media if things are not working for you. Uh, just keep trying things until you feel that little tug inside, which can be a, a little gem, and just try to tease that. Just keep trying to tease that. And it'll come with, with patience and perseverance. No, I love that moment where your art makes sense to you and you're like, it's like a light bulb coming on. Uh, it's been lovely to talk to you. And uh, we look forward to your book coming out. We'll have the appropriate links on social media so people can find it and find your site and look you up. Again, it has been a really wonderful conversation, and I look forward to seeing your work out in the world. Thanks so much, Kathy. It's been a pleasure. Outside Inside Radio is brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, staff, and peer facilitators inside the prisons. Our classes include art making, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We are based at San Diego State University and partner with universities including UC Irvine and Cal State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino. Prison Arts Collective is a project of Arts in Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 
Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Each of our guests is involved in bringing the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Many are returned residents who continue to pursue a creative life or artists working directly with incarcerated populations to expand access to the arts. A special thanks to MIGFUS20 and RTB45 for the music used in the podcast. Take good care and see you next time on Outside Inside. Outside Inside.